Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the uh, parables uh, of Jesus Christ. It's a new series and uh, the parable that we just read is famous. Uh, it's a passage about how to approach God. And uh, for hundreds of years, this parable was called the parable of the prodigal son. The, the prodigal son. But it's a great mistake if you think of the story as just about one son. Because it's about two sons. A younger son and an elder son. And it's also about an amazing father. An incredibly amazing father. And if you don't compare and contrast the way Jesus compares and contrasts the two sons, you're going to miss the point of the entire message. And, uh, and I want to say this passage is, is foundational. The truths that come out of this passage are the foundational truths on which this church is planted. And there are three people, un, three people that absolutely were prominent in shaping my view or reshaping my view 
for understanding of this text. We look at people like Jack Miller and Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney in that particular order. Um, our community groups are reading about it right now. It's an incredible passage. I'm going to shamelessly convey all that I've learned uh, from these men uh, to you this morning. Verses 1 to 3. You have, it's not printed in your bulletin, you have these tax collectors and these sinners, and they're drawing near to Jesus. And as a result, the Pharisees, who are the religious, the teachers, uh, the religious teachers of the day, they're grumbling. They're grumbling that Jesus is drawing near to these sinners and tax collectors. And the text says, and so Jesus told them this parable. The story, this narrative comes in two acts. Act one is about the younger brother. Act two is about the older brother. And really, we're going to see four points. We've been diverging from our three-point model uh, as of late. We're going to, this, this passage is four points. Um, it's about repentance. It's about God. It's about sin. And it's about renewal. Repentance, God, sin, renewal. Those four things. Incredible four, Those four things. It's all you need to know about the gospel, in a sense. The first thing we're going to learn is about repentance. The parable begins in verses 11 to 12. You have the younger son asking for his share of the estate from the father. Now, typically, wealth was centralized around the older son. If you had two sons, if a man had two sons, the wealth centralized around the elder son. Everything was given to the elder son. The credibility, the the love in some ways of the family, the hope of the family rested on that elder son. And as a result, the wealth was proportionally resting on that son as well, usually up to about two times the wealth that the younger son received. And this son, by asking for his share ahead of time, I mean, the father has not died yet. One scholar, one commentator says, to ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive was to wish him dead. What this son is saying is, I want the stuff, but I don't want you. I want the wealth, but I don't want you. Now, it's typical in a Jewish estate for the father to hear this, this respectable man, this man with dignity, to hear this, he would be astounded by this. He would be angered by this. Usually it could end in violence. The son would be beaten and disowned. And Jesus' listeners, if you think about it, they're Pharisees on one end and they were tax collectors. No doubt, both sides, incredibly astonished in hearing this story, in hearing this request in particular. The younger son asking for his share of the estate before the father passes away. But all the more astonishing, all the more astounding is what? The father honors him. The father gives it to him. It says here, so he divided his property between them. The actual language here in this text is he divided his bios between them. It's the Greek word for life. The Greek word for life, sustenance, what sustains life. The thing that sustained this father's life he says he divided it up between his sons. In a traditional agrarian culture, it was an agricultural culture back then, there was a very close linkage, linkage between a man and his land because his land meant currency, meant wealth, and as a result, his life. To lose your land is to lose your status. To lose your land is to lose your wealth, your currency, your status, your bank account, your 401k that has been built up, you're dividing it up already, your life savings, and you're giving it away. It was your sustenance. And in essence, what the son was asking his father 
was basically to tear apart all that made up his life, his life savings, his life worth, to tear it up. And he's saying, I wish you were dead. Emotionally, this father's life is being torn apart. To hear that. He's tearing his father apart. He's killing his father. He's saying, give me my share. What he's saying is, I want your wealth. Physically, socioeconomically, he's tearing it up because to give it away is to give up your status. To give it away is to give up your finance, your life savings. You were now at the mercy. You were once high and now you're low. In every way, he's tearing his father apart and yet his father honors him. His father does it. His father is enduring the worst thing that a human being can endure, and that is what? To the rejection of the people that he loves the most. Look at the grace of the father. Look at the love of the father. Now, the younger son, he leaves home. You know, this, the passage as we just read, he leaves home. And he goes to a distant country. Verse 13, it says he wastes, he squanders all of his wealth on wild living. In fact, the text, the text that says wild living is translated to be he was out of control. He was so wild, he was out of control. He just went wild. And then the famine hits. The son's in this foreign land. He's got no friends anymore. He's got no money anymore. He's got no home. And then this amazing passage, the turn of this text. In verse 17, in the mud, among the pigs, longing to eat from what the pigs were eating, it says he comes to his senses. The actual text says he came to himself. He became sane. Again, he was out of control. He was crazy. He has become sane. And what does he say? What am I doing here? In other words, he's looking at the whole world very, very differently. All of a sudden, he's coming to repentance. He's coming to repentance. He remembers the kiss of the father. He remembers his father and what he had with the father. Now, the word repentance. We hate that word today. Especially in modern times, we hate the word repentance today. Whether you're religious or irreligious, we hate that word. It doesn't matter. The irreligious, the irreligious they believe repentance isn't necessary. Repent to who? To what authority? Like, like the parable, they believe God is dead. But the religious, they believe that repentance is unusual. They believe it's abnormal because they obeyed. Repent. You repent for bad things. They obeyed. Repentance is something that only happens when you screw up, when you mess up. And as a result, the moralists or the religious, they don't experience the kiss of the Father. They feel okay about themselves. They feel, especially in comparison to other people. Now they say the repentance is for that crowd, but not rep- I, I'm rep- I've been repentant, and I'm good, I obey. They feel good, they feel superior about themselves. And what they say as a reason is that the reason that they know that God loves them, the reason that I know that God loves me, the reason that I know that God will answer my prayers is because I'm a good person. I've always obeyed. I obey. I feel good about myself. I definitely do not live like that person over there. But there's no kiss. There's no embrace. There's no music. There's no celebration. They say, of course. Of course the Father loves me. They're entitled. There's no kiss. There's no warmth. There's no change. And people like that are angry. 
They're angry because they obey. They're angry about everything. They're angry about other people. They're angry about their relationship with the, with the Father. They're angry about themselves, and they feel tremendously guilty, tremendously broken when they mess up. They feel like they have to make up for what they've lost, what they broke away from. Now, when you talk to an irreligious person, on the other hand, about the love of God, it's a concept. It's just a sentiment. They say, of course God loves me. God loves everybody. Why wouldn't he love me? And as a result, what happens? There's no kiss. There's no warmth. There's no heat. There's no light. There's no illumination. There's no change. There's no transformation. You know what repentance is? The son, he was crazy. He wakes up. And he says, how could I have been so blind? How could I have been so ungrateful? How could I have missed what was most obvious? How could I have missed the Father who loves me so much? That is repentance. You see everything differently. You see the Father differently. You see yourself differently. That is repentance. You know what it means to come to your senses? First, it means you realize you've been running from God all your life. Or maybe even in discrete moments, you're still running from God. And repentance says this, I'm going to go back to the Father. The Son, he says, I just need to go back to the Father. I'm going to go back to the Father. And when he repents, he says, I'm going to say, I've sinned against heaven and your sight, against you. David, an incredible prayer a confession, an incredible prayer of, of uh, repentance. In Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You realize you've run from the Father. You run from his embrace. You're distant from him. And secondly, what you see is that it's, there's no emphasis on rules. Nowhere here does it mention anything about rules. Sin is underneath sin, at least, it's a desire not so much to break rules. It's to use the rules or to break the rules. It's to use the rules either by keeping them or breaking them. That's probably the better way to say it, but you're using the rules. There's really no difference between keeping the rules or breaking the rules. Sin is to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to say, I'm in charge of my own life. This way, I don't need you. This way, I don't need the Father. By breaking the rules or by keeping them, I don't need the Father. Sin is to do whatever it takes to say, I'm in charge of my life. I am the judge of my life. I am the king of my life. I am the master of my own world. You cannot tell me how to live my life. Now, think about this. Of all the people that Jesus could have used in this parable, he could have used a rapist. He could have used a murderer. He could have used a corrupt politician. He came up with somebody who calls his father, father, and he says, give me my life and leave me the heck alone. That's who he chose. He didn't choose a rapist. He didn't choose a murderer. He chose somebody who just says, give me my life. Let me live it my way. Leave me the heck alone. What he was asking for wasn't illegal. What he was asking for wasn't against the law. 
you know, that's an, it's an interesting thing. It wasn't a violation of the law. And on top of that, it wasn't like he lacked anything. It wasn't like the father withheld anything from him. Later on, he tells the older son, everything I have is yours. It wasn't like he was needy, right? He could have bought the things that he wanted to buy. Sin, what does this passage tell you? Sin is relational. The son had things. The son had access to money. He could have bought anything he wanted. But that's not what he was talking about here. When he was asking for his share of the inheritance, he was asking for independence, to break away from the father. He thought by being away from the father that it would increase his freedom, increase his options, increase his potential, increase his joy. And so sometimes when you look at your life, the sins are much more laid bare. It's much more obvious as a result. But when you do, you know, when you do the things that the Father doesn't want you to do, when you don't do the things the Father wants you to do, it's much more laid bare. But really what sin is, it's departing from the Father thinking that that would increase your potential and your freedom and joy. You want to be apart from Him. Coming to your senses is this. Coming to your senses is, it's realizing, I don't belong where I am. I don't belong where I am right now. It's come to realize who I really am, who the Father really is, and where home really is. That's what what repentance is. It's realizing I don't belong here. There is home, back where my Father is. You know, one psychologist says that children, they don't really experience home. Children who don't experience home all their lives, they live their lives with a fundamental inability to attach themselves. A psychologist says that children who don't experience the fundamental essence of home all their lives, they will live live their lives with a fundamental inability to attach themselves. This son says, in my father's house, there's bread to spare. And I'm starving here. I'm starving here living among these pigs. Very simple, very sublime truths. Very simple but sublime truths here. What is home? He's talking about home. What is home? Home is not a place. It is not a geography. That's not what he's talking about here. You know, that's the reason why the elder brother, he's been home. He's been home, but he's not home. This younger brother, he's far away from home. The reason why the elder brother doesn't know it is because he's in the place. He's in the geography, but he's not home. He's away from home. He's still distant from the father. Now, why? What is home? Home is a relationship. Home is a relationship. It's a place where you belong. It's a place where you're accepted. It's a place where you're known. It's a place where you're embraced and loved. The younger person, he realized, the younger son, he realized that I was trying to go home. I thought by leaving home, I was going to find my own home. I was gonna, I'm looking for a place where I could be accepted, where I belong. And now I realized that my only home, it was, I knew it all along, is back with the Father. I was a fool. That's repentance. That's why, you know, if if you're not repenting, if the only thing you recognize is, gosh, I've done something wrong. I've done this wrong or this wrong. He itemized my wrongs. That's not repentance. You know, this person, he squandered all of his wealth, wild living, out of control. Whenever he, he realized, whenever I try to get control of life away from the Father, that's when I lose control altogether. That's what repentance is. Realizing that whenever you try to control your own life by distancing yourself from God, you end up giving control, giving up control of your life altogether to other things. You end up giving yourself to other things. 
If you try to get away from God to get control of your life, you're giving total control of your life to something else. It's why you're out of control. It's why you're just crazy. You're out of control. You're insane. It's why you're wild, incredibly wild, but it's also why you're starving. Because one day a famine will come. And that's why you're starving. And you realize, repentance is to say, I have bread at home. How in the world did I miss this? How in the world could I have been this foolish? Coming to your senses is not just feeling sorry for something you've done wrong. It's to see you've been running from the Father all your life, trying to make other things in your life home. And those things have actually bankrupted you, squandered your wealth. And it's God who comes to you. It's God who loves you. This son remembered his father, the love of his father. You know, if if the father didn't love him, he realized he would have been kicked out of the house. He never would have been able to return. He never would have been able to come back. He says, man, look at the mercy of my father. Look at the love and the gentleness and the patience and the grief of my father. You know, a lot of times we look at our lives, we're so distant from God, and you realize, man, I lived a terrible life during those years. And oftentimes we feel guilty about yours, but I want to encourage you. All those years, for those of us who've lived wild lives, the Father is incredibly gracious. You're still safe. You're still secure. He was giving you a share so that he knew you would come back, showing you the gentleness and the grace and the peace and and the grief of the Father. So one day you would wake up and return. Look at the mercy of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the gentleness of God. Look at the patience of God. Look at the grief of God. And return to the Father. Now, the son says, I'm going to return. And he's got it together. He came to his senses. I'm going to return. I'm going to confess to the Father, verses 18 to 20. And uh, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 20 because it's pretty amazing. This is what he says he's going to say. He says, I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And what he's saying is, I'm going to confess. Ancient teachings, these Pharisees undoubtedly would have said that if your family, if you betray your family, if you wrong your family, an apology is not enough. You need something greater than an apology. You need to make it right. You need something that's going to make it good. And this son knew that. The son knew, obviously, in that culture, he knew that. So he knew he may not be accepted again. He can come back to the father, head held low, put low, but he knew there's a possibility he may not be accepted again. But he knew that he could pay it back. Now, I don't, he, he knows, I don't know if I could possibly pay back all that the father gave me, but I can try. And so he knows, I dare not ask to be you know, accepted back into the father's home again. But I can say, Father, if you will just take me in as an apprentice, one of your hired men as an apprentice, I can, I can learn a trade. I can learn a trade like in those days, and I can build that skill, and I know that the money that I earn, I can pay you back. I can at least try it. I know I can't be your son. I know you probably never accept me as a son again, but I can work my way in. I'm out of the family, but at least I can begin to pay you back, and I'd be happy with that. At least for everything that I've done, I could do that. He wants to work his way back into the father's house. 
Basically, you know what this is? Basically, he wants to become the elder brother. The elder brother that always obeyed. The elder brother that never disobeyed. The elder brother that slaves and works and always follows the father's orders. Because like most of us, who discovers real, real gospel, the real gospel, for most of us who discovers the true essence of Christianity, we think that this is what it means to return to the church. We think it's about obedience. We start out as the younger son, distant from the father, and we say, no, I will set myself straight, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to feel guilty, I know, but I'm going to obey. And that's how I'm going to get back into the father's that's how I'm going to have access to the Father again. Think about this. The young man is not coming to his senses unless the Father, first of all, already loved him. He realized that. He's remembering the genuine love of the Father. And when is, you've got to think about this, when is the kiss, when did the kiss come? If you read this text, did the kiss come when he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me like one of your hired men. Did the text say, then the father ran and kissed him and hugged him? No, that's not what the text says. The son's got the speech. He's reciting in his head. He's reciting in his head. And and he says, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he's walking back and he sees the father and the father, totally undignified. He's raising up his, his clothes because he's running. To bear your legs as a father was a totally undignified act in those days, especially a man of this stature. And what does the father do? He's running to the son because back then, dignified men never ran. Dignified men never run. You actually walk to the father. The father never runs to you. But here, the father waiting at the end of the driveway, and he's running to his son. And, and you know, the, the man, he's, he doesn't wait to hear the speech. It's not like he's sitting there crossing his arms and tapping his feet and says, okay, this better be good. That's not what he does. He runs to his son. He sees his son from far off and he runs. Ancient fathers never ran. And in fact, many commentators say that he's actually acting a lot like ancient mothers of his day. The old man, he runs down the path, cuts across the field, sees a gap, right? He's like a linebacker. He sees a gap. He jumps through. He tackles his son. He embraces his son. And what is he doing? He's hugging his son, and he's kissing his son. The son hasn't said a word. The son hasn't said a word. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven. He starts his speech. The son starts his speech. And father says, quick, quick. He cuts him off. Before he even got to the proposal, the father cuts him off. And he says, get him a robe. Get him the best robe. Get him the best robe. In other words, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up your act. I'm not going to wait for you to, to, to get your words out. You haven't even had a bath yet. You're dirty. Get him a robe. You, smell, you, you look gaunt. You smell. You're completely unrecognizable. But it's you. You're my son. And you look at you. You're completely, you've lost honor. Give him a ring. You know, your feet, they're, they're incredibly tired. You, 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 look at how gaunt you are. Get him sandals. You're hungry. Prepare the feast. Quick, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration tonight for my son. Jesus is teaching us this. There is no level of dignity that I am willing to give up to show you 
the depths of my love for you. There is no sacrifice that I am not willing to make that to show you how deep my love for you is. The context. You have these Pharisees and these tax collectors. They're shocked. Utterly shocked. They were waiting up until this story for the sordid punchline. What is the father going to say? They're just waiting to hear. The tax collectors are like, like cringing. And the Pharisees are like, yes, 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 yes. And what happens? Both of them are astounded. Both of them were expecting the son to grovel. They're waiting for the grovel, right? Jesus is saying, there is no God like this. There is no father like this. There is no God like this. There is not a single religion anywhere in the world that even claims to have a God like this. There is nowhere, no other religion do you see a God who is willing to undignify himself, run, jump, kiss, embrace, forgive, and bring you in still with an abundance of wealth to bring his children home. There's no God like this. That's what gets us to repent. It's his kindness that leads us to repent. The second thing, you're thinking, wow, that was a long point. Much faster. Let me show you. Point two. Quick point. It, it shows us who God is. Now, God is a father. Very simple. But very sublime. Jesus refers to God as Father throughout the Gospels. This passage defines what he means by Father. Now, lots of people here, if I look at the crowd, lots of people here struggle with the concept of fatherhood. You know, we come from many, many different contexts and backgrounds, lots of broken homes. Um, in the Bible, it teaches us God is your Father. God is a father, but Jesus says this is, this, is, this is a greater father than anyone that you've ever known in history. And Jesus, who knows the father, knows God more than any other name, he calls God father. The Muslim Quran has 400 names for the word of God. 400 ways to address God. None of them, none of them address him as father. It's an amazing thing. If you look at this text, it begins with a very enduring, persevering, emotional rejection. And, and Jesus, Jesus is saying, he gives us a father that's unlike any other father that, that any other religion can show you, uh, and, and any other father in that culture. One with incredible emotional abandon, one with incredible generosity, one with incredible resilience, a willingness to forgive a willingness to suffer the agony of rejected love. And he's saying, you know, I know you've had, uh, I know you've had a lot of fathers. You know, I know you've seen a lot of broken fathers. You've never seen a father like this one. You've never experienced a father like this one. In fact, my father is the father to whom all flawed fathers point to. This one has all power, all majesty, all authority. He is that but he's got all love, all suffering, 
all longing for his children, all grace, all love. No one's ever described God like that. No Muslim will ever describe a God like that. No Jew will ever describe God like that. No Buddhist or Hindu will ever describe God. That's the second point. I think I've caught up. Third point, Jesus is redefining our view of sin. The younger brother, he's got a very traditional view of sin. A very obvious, laid bare view of what sin is, in a way. He's insulted, you know, through the younger brother at least. You know, the Pharisees, they look at the younger brother, they say, this guy, he insulted his father. He's sleeping around with prostitutes, incredibly self-indulgent, incredibly dirty. He deserved to be there with the pigs. And now he's coming back to the father and he deserves to grovel. But Jesus redefines sin for us because then he turns to the second act and he shows us the elder brother. And he's teaching us that both sons, both sons are distant from the father. Both sons are distant from the father's heart and from his embrace. Neither of them really love the father. Growing up, I used to think that this text was, the moral of the story was, we're all younger brothers. We need to become like the older brother. I don't know if you guys come from church. I don't know what your church backgrounds are. But my church background was like that. Look at the younger brother, bad. Look at the older brother, very, very good. Be like the older brother. Now, Jesus here is teaching us, if that's what you believed, you're missing the point. Neither sons really loved their father. Neither son really wanted the father. If you look at the anger of the older brother, what was he angry about? It was the things. It was the stuff. Both sons wanted the stuff. They didn't care for the father. Each one of them is using the father to get what they really love. What they really wanted was the status. What they really wanted was the independence. What they really wanted was the wealth. What they really wanted was the women. They wanted the friends. They wanted the acceptance. One of them did it by being really, really bad. We look at him, we say, that's obvious, it's laid bare. He's with prostitutes. Even the older son tells on him. He says, this son, he was with prostitutes. Don't you remember that? Even the older son knew it. The rumors must have spread. But the other one was distant from the father by being good. By being good. And so Jesus is showing us that both sons were lost. The bad one was lost in his badness. But the good one, and this is the big turn, the good one was lost in his goodness. And this is the turn. This is the shock of the parable. In the end, it's the bad one that gets the party. Pharisees and tax collectors are hearing the story. The the Pharisees are waiting for the grovel. They're waiting for the punishment. What could God say as the key to coming back in? What must the son do? And all of a sudden, this younger son, having done nothing, returning to the embrace, to an incredible, incredible embrace of the father who has run out to see him, and he gets the party. It's the son that gets, the younger son that gets the party. It's the older son that's angry and won't go in. 
It's the younger son that gets the celebration. It's the younger son who's been dead and alive again. The older son is confused. The older son is angry. The person who ruined his family reputation with prostitutes is saved. But the hardworking, obedient son, the one who always obeyed, is lost. Still confused. And the story ends completely open-ended. We don't know what happens to the older son. You know, it gets even worse. Why was the good son really lost? Why was the good son really lost? The good son, he wasn't lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness. He says it. He says, Father, all these years I slaved for you. He calls himself a worker. He says, I never disobeyed your orders. He's not looking at God as his father. He's not looking at the father as his father. He says, you are a master. You are my boss. And I never disobeyed him. What do I get? I deserve this. See me. Love me. Give me attention. That's what he's saying. He's insulting the father. He pulls the father out of his own party. He pulls the father out of his own party and he says, look you. Look at what you've done. Look at what you're doing for him and what have you done for me? That's what he's saying. The older son is lost, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness, not in spite of his righteousness. It's not his sins that are keeping him from his father. It's his righteousness that's keeping him from his father. An amazing story. Jesus says it's his righteousness that keeps this son from his father. (laughs) Amazing. Both sons are trying to control God through their lifestyles. But in the end, the younger son, the bad son, got in. Very, very obvious. Got in. Got the celebration. Got the music. Got the dance. Got the embrace. He got the kiss. We're not really sure what happened to the good one. What is Jesus telling us here? It may be that much harder for those of us who've grown up in the church, done the song and dance, to actually hear the music, to actually hear the music of grace. The moral, the religious people, they're astounded. They never saw God like this. They never saw God like this. The sinners, the tax collectors, they're astounded. Why? Because they never saw a God like this. They never saw a God like this. Each side has their own lifestyles. The religious, they live a moral good life. The irreligious, a self-indulgence bad life. Each side says, this is the way to be found. This is the way to find yourself. This is the way to be acceptable. Jesus says, both of you are wrong. Both of you are lost. You probably heard this before. The religious people, they say that the moral people are in, and it's the religious people, the immoral people that are out. They say the moral are in, the good are in, and the bad are out. The irreligious people, they say the open-minded are in. The open-minded are in. It's the narrow-minded that are out. Jesus says, neither of you are in. It's the humble that are in. And it's the proud that are out. And both of you are exceptionally proud. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is not irreligion. Do you know that in those days, they never called Christianity a religion because there was no temple, there was no priest, there was no sacrifice. Where do you go? There was no temple, there was no priest, there was no sacrifice, not, at least not visibly. 
These people who were Christians, they never had a temple, they never went to a temple, they never had priests in their lives, they didn't offer sacrifices, they couldn't call it a religion, they called it an anti-religion all those days. It's not morality, it's not immorality. It's not about obedience, it's not about disobedience. It's not halfway. A lot of people say, yeah, so I realize it's not about obedience. It's not about disobedience. It's about a balance between the two. It's right in the middle. It's not either. It's not that either. It's a completely different way, completely off the charts, completely different way to show you and describe for you how you have access to God, our Father. You can see why the elder brother, you can see why the younger brother, their lostness are both terrible. The younger brother with his self-indulgence and his addictions and, his, and, and uh, his, uh, his wild living, he's completely out of control, brings lots of misery into the world, lots of misery to families around him, relationships, people who care for him. But the elder brother lost his also miserable, so miserable. You think the father was happy in seeing his older son, hearing what his older son is saying? It's tearing it apart again. But look at his grace. He's saying, you can come in. You can still come in. Look at the older son. He's judging and he's angry. His brother, who's been missing and gone, has come home. He doesn't even want to see his brother. He's talking down to his father. Look at his anger always. The religious, always angry. Always angry. Because I lived a good life. God owes me. It's a way of controlling God. Look at the younger son. Why does he get the music? Why does he get the feast? He came to his senses. He realized he was lost. Jesus very well could be saying that it's a lot harder for those who've grown up in the church, who lived good moral lives, to realize that they're lost. More so than people, you know, elder brothers are all over. They love Reformed theology. They love talking it. They love reading it. They love discussing it. You know, they love talking about other denominations and how wrong they are. They love doing that. They love talking about how other people live and why they don't like to live that way. They love being clean and upright, and they're good. We're not saying bad things about them. They're good. Who would you rather have as a neighbor? I would rather have an older brother as a neighbor. It's going to be quiet next door. It's going to be safe next door. I can put him down as an emergency contact for my job because he'll be there. He's reliable. But it's harder because of that. It's harder for him to recognize his lostness because sin is being distant from the Father. It's leaving home. You can be very, very close in the vicinity, growing up in the church, and still be very, very far from home. You're still living as an orphan without a father. How do you know? When do you know you left home? You know what a famine is? A lot of us, we struggle with our struggles and, and, and the suffering that we endure. The famine teaches you, shows you, if you are wise, it takes a certain kind of person to recognize this. When you see the famine in your life, that's when you realize you're far from home. How poor you are. What you were intended to be. You realize the sin promises an increase of potential and options and freedom and joy. It's going to make you more human when you realize that's made you less human. You're with the pigs. You're the younger son. You're starving. How do you become more human again? You come to your senses. You come to yourself. How most people view their relationship with God is this. 
I need to work my way back into the favor, into the favor of God. And if that's what you believe right now, or functionally, if that's how you're living your life, you're still very, very far from home. Very, very far from him. But look at this. Look at the grace of this father in this story. He says, son, he doesn't say, look you, look me, look you. Do you know who you're talking to? That's not what he says. He says, son, my son. Literally, the text says, my child, my dear child. He's doting on his son. He says, my child, all I have is yours. It's actually literally true. We're going to get to that. He says, all I have is yours. Come in. Your son, your brother was dead and he's alive. And there's an incredible feast, a feast for the ages. He says, come in. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. Jesus, talking to Pharisees who he knows are eventually going to band together and have him killed. What do you think he's saying in this passage? He's talking to the very people who are lost, distant from the Father. And he's saying, he's pleading with them, knowing that they're going to come together to kill him. He says, you can come back in. That's grace. If you're an irreligious person sitting in the church, usually we turn our noses up against the preacher and the religious. And you say, hmm, right? If, it's very, if, you are an irre, if you're a religious person in the church, you look at the people next to you who may be irreligious, and you say, hmm, right? That's easy to do that. Look at the father. He says, the younger son, you get my embrace. To the older son, he says, you can have my embrace. Look at the grace of the Father, the incredible patience of the Father, the long-suffering of the Father. Jesus is saying that. He's pleading with the Pharisees. He's saying, you can have access. Look at his gentleness. And he leaves the story open-ended. You know why? Because he's talking to them and he's saying, I'm going to tell you a story. You tell me how it's going to end. You tell me how it's going to end. How do you get renewed? How do you get back in? This is the last point. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to go very quickly. You've got to see that the father reaches out to both sons. You know, he reaches out to the younger son. He reaches out to the older son. And you see that the embrace is available. But here we go. This is, this is crazy, all right? The father says, I still want you in the banquet. And the story open-ended. And he says this, son, my dear child, Everything I have is yours. And that's literally true. You know why? Because remember, the father divided his estate between the two sons. The younger, the younger portion, he already gave to the younger son, and he spent everything. So when this younger son comes home, everything he's got left in his estate belongs to who? The elder son. That's why the elder son's so mad. Because he deserved this. He worked for this. That's what he thinks. But he says, he, he says, get the best robe. Whose robe is it? Quick, get the ring. Whose ring is it? It's the elder son's. Get him sandals. Whose sandals are they? Elder son's. He says, quick, kill the fatted calf. That's a big deal. I can't go into it a whole lot, but a big deal. You know why? Because back then it's an agrarian culture. You depended on your livestock for wealth. 
That's why you lived off the land. To have a fatted calf, a young cow. A young cow grows up to become a big cow. The big cow does what? Gives milk, gives hide, gives meat, lots of things. But if you kill him at a fatted young stage, you are sacrificing part of your future. You never ate the fatted calf unless it was something that was worth a huge, huge, huge celebration. He says, quick, without a thought, get the fatted calf. Whose calf was it? This son says, you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with, my friends. And this younger brother who comes squanders your wealth with prostitutes and you kill the fatted calf for him? That's what he's saying. Everything he, everything that was used to bring the younger son back in and make him a son again belonged to the elder brother. And the elder brother is upset about it and he's pouting about it and he's, he's whining about it and he's angry and he's judging about it. And he, because everything that he's giving up, he now knows, I'm being emptied for the son. Where do you think I'm going with this? I'm being emptied with, uh, for the son. C.S. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumble until later on you become the grumble. You get that? Why does Jesus give us a picture of such a terrible older brother? Terrible older brother. And it's because of this. He's trying to show the Pharisees in his attempt to bring them back in what they look like. He's showing the religious what they look like. He's showing us what we often look like. What would a real elder brother look like? Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, You are brothers. You are brothers. A real elder brother, a loving and gracious elder brother would go out and look for the younger brother. And he would pay at his own cost. You remember Darcy in Pride and Prejudice? Darcy, his arch enemy is who? Wickham. Wickham. They weren't related, but it was his arch nemesis. It was his arch enemy. And out of his love, what does he do? He goes out and he actually spares Wickham by emptying himself a tremendous amount of wealth to bring him back into salvation. Basically, so that he would be spared. If you know the story, anything about the book, so that he would be spared for the one he loves. Offers his life. Pays at his own cost. This younger brother didn't, brother didn't have an elder brother like that. But we do. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. This narrative was meant to point to the real elder brother. The true elder brother. <laughs> the, Jesus doesn't just leave a, worldly, a mere worldly estate to go find us. He left his kingdom. He left his kingship. He doesn't just search at the cost of his own wealth, but at the cost of his life. He doesn't just leave home. Now, he, le- he left home. He left his kingdom. But it's not to distance himself from the Father, but because he was intimate with the Father, because of his intimacy, to bring us back And what does he do? At what cost? He becomes the younger brother. Doesn't he? He becomes the despised. He becomes the impoverished. He, on the cross, what does he say? I am distant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have become distant from the Father. I have become rejected. I have become abandoned. Everything that that younger brother deserved, everything that the older brother deserved, he says, I have become rejected. I've become abandoned. I've become distant. In the most, as intimate as he was, that is how forsaken he was on the cross. In the book of Luke, incredible passage, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. 40 days without food. 40 days without food, and he's tempted. Turn these stones to bread. What does he say? No. 
He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And, and you know, on the cross, what happens? He's saying, I am forsaken. I am hungering and longing for the one thing that will fill me, the Father. And now I'm hungry. Now I'm starving. I long to be back with the Father. And the Father didn't take me back in. The Father has rejected me. The full wrath of the Father has been poured out on me. Why did he do that? Because he is the true elder brother. Because for you. For me. So he would seek and save those who knew they were lost. So we would come to our senses and so that you would get the embrace. He got the wrath. So that you would get the honor. So you would get the ring. So that you would get the kiss. Jesus got the kiss of the betrayer. We got the kiss of the Father, the embrace of the Father. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus emptied himself and became poor. And yet in that poverty, he became obedient, lived this life in total obedience all the way to his death on the cross. Amazing passage, amazing gospel. And on the, gospel, on the cross, he was stripped naked so that we'd be covered in his righteousness. The younger son probably arrived virtually nude, virtually naked, no clothes, tattered. Jesus was stripped naked for us. The younger son got the ring. Jesus got the crown of thorns. The younger son got sandals for his feet. Jesus got nails on the cross. And he did it with utter joy. Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. The elder son says, I slave for you. I wanted the stuff, but I don't care for you. Jesus says, I'm going to give up all my stuff because of my love for the Father, for you, for you. He became disowned so that we would be sons. Friends, this is a tremendous call. This week, whether you are at work, whether you are at home, with your friends, in your community groups, will you see, at any given point in time, the the propensity for us to become distant at any point in time, the moment you turn to something else as home, even for that moment, the distance, you're distancing yourself again. Remember the grief of the Father, the long-suffering, but that long-suffering is grace, his patience, his gentleness, and his love. And remember the sacrifice of the true elder brother for you to bring you back in. Will, you, will that bring you back? Will it bring you back? And remember the love of the Father and the music of salvation and the incredible dance of grace, the incredible embrace and the kiss of the grace of the Father through His Son that continually challenges you and sometimes corrects you and, but always sacrifices and gives abundantly and sufficiently for you. Will you remember that this week? Let's pray.